So, I'm excited. I love starting a new series. Brand new series in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. I don't know how many of you have just have ever gone through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I, I, would, I would say probably not many of you. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's a book that's maybe, maybe neglected, uh, maybe not really understood. There's a lot of stuff in there that's hard to understand. There are some verses in the book of Hebrews that you'll, when we come across them, you'll say, yeah, I know that verse. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever is in Hebrews. You know, and there's some really good verses, but we're going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this book called expository preaching. Expository preaching is not simply going through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Some people do that and don't do expository preaching because expository preaching has to do with exegeting or drawing out the meaning of the text from the text. And what the original audience or the original writer and audience understood God to be saying in its time. And then bringing application to our lives. Uh, You can really go astray pulling verses out of context. That's what expository preaching. So we'll look at the text's original meaning and then make application. And it's vital to understand who the author is, what the, uh, the original recipients would be understanding as they receive the word of God. So this morning, as we do with every series, I believe we're around 13 series, 13 different books of the Bible we studied together since I've been here, um, since 2006. Oh, okay, thank you. Since 2006. So what I like to do, and we do, again, every series, is we're going to look at the overall arching themes of the book. We're going to spend some time looking at the historical background of the book, the context of the book. We'll just spend a couple of minutes, uh, or a couple of verses, I should say, in the book at all. That's all we're going to do is verses one through three this morning. So if you don't like history, you don't like context, you don't like background stuff, we'll wake you in about 20 minutes because that's where we're going. Um, And what I want to do is we look at this book. What I want to do is I want to start with looking at the book as a whole and starting with things that we're not really sure concerning the book and move toward things that we can be absolutely sure about the book. And you'll understand what I mean in a moment. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is who is the author of the book of Hebrews? Who is the author of the book of Hebrews? We don't know. We're not sure who the human author who wrote the book of Hebrews. Actually, the, this little epistle or book has been known to be called the orphan epistle. It doesn't have a human writer. One of the first persons that were claimed to be the writer of the book, not by himself, but by others in the first and uh, second century, is the apostle Paul. Some think that the apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. The problem is that the book of Hebrews has some phraseology, some syntax, some, some sentences that really don't fit with the rest of the books or the type of writings that Paul does in the books that we know he wrote, like Galatians we just went through. Some scholars say, well, you know what? It could have still been Paul. You know, Paul wrote letters like Galatians and 1 Corinthians to mainly Gentile churches. This book was written to Jewish people. Maybe he just changed his phraseology a little bit. We don't know. We honestly don't know. Some people believe that the book was written by a man by the name of Barnabas, okay, Barnabas, remember Barnabas, traveling companion of the apostle Paul. Barnabas' name is, uh, is he's called in, in Acts, 
the son of encouragement or the son of exhortation. Well, Hebrews chapter 13 describes this letter as a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation. Say, it might be Barnabas. Barnabas was a Levite, and therefore a Levite understood the Jewish law and understood the Old Testament, and there's a lot of that in Hebrews. Maybe Barnabas wrote it. Others say it was Apollos. If you know Apollos from 1 Corinthians and from Acts chapter 18, he was an eloquent man. He was from Alexandria. He, he, ref, he refuted the Jewish people in public debate. He, he knows the scripture. Maybe Apollos wrote Hebrews. He's a friend of Timothy. Timothy is mentioned in chapter 13 again. Interesting, Apollos is from Alexandria. Alexandria had this large influence of Plato philosophy and a man by by the name of Philo was there and he wrote commentaries on this philosophy and had to do with mediators and angels and Moses and we see that in in the first chapter maybe it was Apollos some think maybe it was Dr. Luke the Greek in the Hebrew the Greek in this New Testament book called Hebrews is very eloquent like no other New Testament book maybe Dr. Luke wrote it I don't think so he's a Gentile this is usually for the Jewish audience We just don't know. We just don't know. Could have been Paul. Could have been Barnabas. Could have been Apollos. Could have been a guy by the name Clement. He's from Rome. We don't know. What we do know is that whoever wrote this book is a companion, a close companion with one of the apostles. That's why some say it can't be Paul. Paul's an apostle. Chapter 2, verse 3 says that this person wrote this, was a second generation believer, like Luke and Mark, but still under apostolic authority and can write scripture. We're not really sure. As we move on, we're not totally sure either who were the original recipients of the letter. We're not sure. Look at the, look at the title, To the Hebrews. That's not in the original, but we found that title very early on in the church history. So we're pretty sure, I think we could be pretty sure, that it was a Jewish congregation, ethnic Jewish people, who had turned to Jesus from their sins, turned to Jesus, trusted Christ, believed the gospel, understood him to be the Messiah to the Hebrews. It's filled with all kinds of books, filled with all kinds of references to Hebrew history, Old Testament scriptures, There's really nothing in this book that speaks directly to Gentiles like 1 Corinthians does when it speaks to uh, idol worship and the worship of temples and stuff of that nature. It's a Jewish audience. And we can be sure, I'm pretty sure, like any other congregation that has ever gathered in the history of the church, there were genuine believers who were converted to Christ, who were born again of his spirit, who loved Jesus, had a relationship, union with Christ, and there were those who come to church, go to community group, gather in worship, hang out with believers, and they're not really converted, they're make-believers. Every congregation has them. 1 John 2 says this. The Apostle John writes this. They, people that were with them in the congregation, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, they left the community, they left the church, that it might be made plain that they all are not of us. They were never part of us. And that, that's just the reality in the church. And we're going to see that clearly in the warnings in this wonderful little book. So they were Jewish believers. We're not 100% sure where the congregation who got this letter We're not sure where that congregation was. Some people believe it was in Rome. 
Hebrews 13 says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who from, come from Italy, send you greetings. It could be that we're sending it from Rome or they're receiving the letter in Rome. We're not really sure. There's a lot of Jewish, as I mentioned, we're going to look at a lot of the, the Old Testament and, and, the, and Jewish writings and, and things of that nature. Some people believe it's probably written somewhere for the congregation in Judea or, or Palestine area, Jerusalem. Some people think maybe it was written to Asia Minor or Egypt. I, I, I think either Italy or somewhere in Jerusalem is probably where the letter was sent. We're also going to be pretty sure, as we're getting closer, that the, books, the date of the book was written somewhere, I believe, in the mid-60s A.D., the reason why we know that is it talks about persecution, again, in this book, in chapter 10. And there, were, there were two very serious persecutions in the first century, 49 A.D. under Claudius and 64 A.D. under Nero, which I believe that's the persecution that this book is mentioning, 64 A.D., and therefore it was probably written right after 64, 65, 66 A.D. One of the things that we can be, again, really sure on is that the Jerus- in Jerusalem, the temple was still functioning. We're going to see it over and over in this book as we study it, that Jesus is better than the Old Testament or the sacrificial systems, and the tense, the verb tenses are that they're still happening, and happening and happening well. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so it had to be written sometime before 70 A.D. So we're pretty sure. Okay? And here's the deal. The Jewish believers who received this letter, because of their faith in Christ, were under severe hardship and persecution, and some of them were, were, were slipping back and wanting to go back to Judaism, to the Old Testament ways. And the purpose of this letter, uh, we are very sure about this, the purpose of writing this letter was to encourage them not to fall away. But, but to press on to maturity. Multiple warnings we'll see. I think there's five or six of them were given because in their, in their struggles, in the persecution, they were susceptible to doubts about Christ and thinking that, wow, those old ways were better. Let me go back to the old way of thinking, the old rituals and the old patterns of, of life. They thought back to the past, their traditions and ceremonies, and it must have been appealing to them. That happens to us. We need to be reminded, as this book is going to show us, of the sufficiency, supremacy, and superiority of Christ, the eternal Son of God, that Jesus is better not to go back to your old ways, the old patterns of thinking, the old habits and hang-ups. We need to heed the warnings about the danger of wandering away from Christ. And we need a word of encouragement. As I've been reading this book over and over again, and I want you to as well, it's not only just these warnings, but there's these hope-filled promises that were given to the faithful to remain faithful, to remain pressing on, to, to mature. So we're not really sure who the human author is. We're not completely sure where the churches were located. We could be more confident that it was definitely written before 70 AD. There were a Jewish community with some non-believers there 
who are being persecuted. And now this letter is written to say, look, Jesus is better. Don't wander away from Christ. Remember the promises. Press on, be faithful, endure and mature in the Lord. That's what Hebrews is about. And Hebrews is also a very special book because, which we're going to see this over and over again. It is, if if you're here this morning and you're wondering, I don't, excuse me, I don't really understand the Old Testament. You know, I, just, just a lot of stories. I don't see how they all fit with the main story, right? The Bible's got a bunch of little stories in it, little books in it, 66 of them, but there's one main story, and it's Jesus, redemption. But where does the Old Testament fit? Well, Hebrews is a wonderful contrast of the Old and New Testament and where Jesus fits that puzzle piece for us. We're gonna learn a lot about the Old Testament and see this contrast between the, the unfulfilled and incomplete provision of the Old Covenant and the fulfilled, complete, and infinitely better provision of the New Covenant offered to us, given to us by the perfect high priest, God's only Son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus is better than the angels. That Jesus is better than Moses. That Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. That Jesus is better than the sacrifices, the priest. He's even bringing in a greater and better, unshakable kingdom. Hebrew helps us to put that all together. But let me add one more thing about what we know and don't know. There's one, there, again, we go from not sure to really sure, but let me tell you what's 100%. I'm sure of, and you need to be sure of. We know ultimately that God is the divine author of the book of Hebrews, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is exhaled, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy. Don't, don't think, we're gonna talk about prophecy in a minute. Don't think, when you think prophecy, don't think uh, I'm predicting that the Yankees are going to win the World Series, okay? When you think prophecy, don't think foretelling, think forthtelling, mouthpiece of God, okay? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I don't know about you, but I believe God is smart enough and, and powerful enough to write a book, okay? And we can be assured that it has relevancy for our lives because there's so many things that are competing for our lives, the good and the bad. And we need to know that Jesus is better. We have a, a fast-paced, moving culture we live in, right? Informational age, huge varieties of religious perspectives, humanism, spirituality, just plain old prideful, selfish appetites. That, that turn our hearts into this, to this giant arms of seeking something. Something better. Something more fulfilling. Something more satisfying. And our, and our hearts are looking to, to grasp something better. Something that, that we seek that can fill it. It's called idolatry. You know, we talk about sin and we need to talk about sin. The Bible talks about sin. First John calls it lawlessness, rebellion. Um, not obeying the commands of God, the moral understanding of who God is and all God has said, and that's all true. But at the core, it's a heart that is centered on something other than God. It is the breaking of the first commandment, 
Not just the fifth, sixth, and seventh about lying and adultery and all the other things. It, it's breaking the first commandment to have other gods before God. It is, it is rebellion of all kinds of things because we worship and are satisfied in and seek after meaning, purpose, and value, justification. We talked about that at the last series. Through other things than our creator, God. And Christ is the answer to our wandering hearts. Christ is the answer to things that have come up in our lives that we, we want to run to because you and I both know that those things will never completely satisfy. How do you know? Because everything you sought after and you obtained was never enough. Jesus is better. When we f- believe on him, our sins are forgiven. He gives us a new heart. Okay, and even though, and I'm going to speak to you, if you're not a believer, that's the first time you heard that, Jesus is better, you're going to hear more of it today. But maybe you're here today, and you're a believer, and you've repented of your sins, and if you've been, if you've been you know, Christian for longer than five minutes, you know the hardship and the chaos and the brokenness of this world, and our own, pro, uh, our own desires to go back to idols is real. And we need to be reminded over and over again to keep our eyes on Jesus. He is better. Roger Brown writes this, no believer can cope with adversity unless Christ fills his horizons, sharpens his priorities, and dominates his experience, end quote. Family, this book is gonna teach us that we should not, we should not wander down the road of alternatives. Substitutes. No matter how attractive they are, they look, whether it's money, whether it's prestige, whether it's power, whether it's relationships, whether it's a good thing like family, like marriage, like children, all those things are good things, but when they become the ultimate things, they become idolatry. Because Jesus is the giver of all those gifts, and he alone can fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts. Jesus is better. I'll let John Calvin conclude our introduction to Hebrews. He said this. Since this epistle addressed to Hebrews contains a full discussion of the eternal divinity of Christ, his supreme government and only priesthood, And as these things are so explained in it that the whole power and work of Christ are set forth in the most graphic way, it rightly deserves to have the place of honor, the place of honor of an invaluable treasure in the church, end quote. That's the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, your Bible's in the back if you don't have one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power and after 
making purifications for sins, Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy, infallible, authoritative word. Three simple things. The revelation of God in the past, the revelation of God in the present, the revelation of God in a person, okay? That's where we're going. Number one. Verse one again. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The author of Hebrews is gonna open up this book, especially chapter one, we're gonna see it all throughout the book, with this beautiful portrait, this, this stunning picture of who Jesus Christ is. Larry Richard rightly says, the book of Hebrew begins with Jesus, total confidence in him, must be the basis of our life and our new identity as Christians. It is important to realize that all there is of salvation for us is to be found in Jesus. There is nothing higher, there is nothing greater than knowing Christ, end quote. What's amazing about this, as we look at these few verses, is the author, whoever's writing this, is well aware of the severe persecution. Now, we're not talking about, I didn't get the promotion because I'm a Christian. That's not what we're talking about. Okay, Nero would skin people alive. Nero would take people with, with sword, with, with, with long uh, you know, um, poles, and, and light them on fire. Believers in Christ. We're talking persecution. And the book opens up. We're not talking about that. But what does the book open up? Talking about looking to Jesus. Right? He wants to remind them of the uniqueness of Christ. It's not that hard times are easy. That's why they're called hard times. Very hard times sometimes. But we cannot face, we should not face. The author is telling us don't face them without first looking in the face the truth, the reality of our God. And how do we know? How, how, how do we know what we're looking into? Look what it says. God spoke. God spoke, verse 1. We, we, for thousands of years, God has been using his word as the purpose of revealing himself to us, to, to, to communicate to us. If man is going to know anything about God, God has to be a speaking God. The only way we will ever know that he is and who he is and what he wants is if he speaks, if he, what's called self-disclosure. God is not an idea to be thought about, a speculation to be considered. God cannot be understood with one's own imagination, speculation, fabrication. God can only be known through revelation, self-disclosure, the unveiling of who he is. With all due respect, yours and mine, puny little brain. In that puny little brain, we're incapable of comprehending, recognizing, and understanding God at all. God had to come into the world, invade mankind, and speak. You want a close relationship with Christ? Read his word. That's like, think about it this way. Think about any relationship you have. The more you know the person, the more the person shares their heart, shares their struggle, shares their reality and reveals the deep things of the heart, the better you know that person. Same with God, who's revealed himself to us and communicated to us. 
He, 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 is, a, he is communicating. He needs to be listened to, to be known and loved. He's not an abstract or a thought. He's not far off. Far off. He's not hiding. He's wooing us, and he does it through his word. And how did that happen? Look what it says. It tells us in the past, at many times and in many ways, long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet. Okay, our fathers. Who's our fathers? He's talking to the Jewish community. So he's talking about the Old Testament. Again, Peter said, no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but God spoke. He moved them along by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Old Testament Scripture and the New Testament Scripture. So yeah, man was involved. Man was involved in writing Scripture, but it was God who moved them and carried them along to give us this self-disclosure. Man used their minds, their personalities, but they were controlled by the Holy Spirit. Again, God is powerful enough and smart enough to write a book. And sometimes, it says here, many times in many ways, sometimes God worked his, his, this inspiration, what's called inspiration, through dictation. He tell the prophets, write this down. Go tell the people. Sometimes he told Moses face to face with the Ten Commandments. Sometimes he writes it down. Sometimes he speaks through visions and dreams, object lessons. He spoke to Samuel, to Moses, to David. A variety of ways, and a variety of uh, uh, ways and times in the Old Testament. Sometimes God would speak through providence. You know, there's a book in the Bible in the Old Testament that don't even mention his name. Because God is working through his story, history, his story. And let me just say this. I'd like to, I like to talk about this for just for a moment when we, we deal with prophets. There are no Isaiahs and Jeremiahs running around today. With that same authority, they had, when the Old Testament prophet came to town and spoke, y'all better do what he tells you to do. If somebody comes to you and says, I fulfill the office of prophet, which ceased in the first century uh, with the writing of Scripture, thus saith the Lord, run. Tell him, I have God's word to speak to me. Now, there's a difference between the office of prophet and the gift of prophecy, which I believe in the New Testament gifts of, of the Spirit. Two offices in the church, New Testament, pastor, elder, deacon, deaconess. And the pastor, elders are given the oversight for the doctrine of the church, the teaching of the church. And the gifts of prophecy, word from the Lord, has to be subjected first to the scripture and then to the leaders of the church. Many of you know we had a guy stand up here, nice guy, brother in Christ, but what he spoke was not biblical. And he went around the authority and leaders of the church. He's not here today. He didn't come back. Um, he's not buried out back or anything. You know, but, you know, he just doesn't come back to church. <laughs> Real nice guy, but it's just, we don't, we don't roll like that. You have a word from the Lord. If you have a word from the Lord and God is on your heart, come to the pastor elders. We'll meet with you. We'll, do, we'll look at the scripture together. We'll seek the face of God. Maybe you do. God spoke to us through the prophets of old. And the Old Testament continues to function authoritatively for God's people. It is God's word. There's nothing wrong with the Old Testament. It's incomplete. It's not fulfilled, but there's nothing wrong with it. Yet at the same time, this next verse will show us that there is something more. That, there's, that it's incomplete. It's a story. The Old Testament is a story that needs a conclusion. The revelation of God in the present. Look at verse 2 with me. But in these last days. Stop right there. I want to just, just, just a couple of minutes because we hear this all the time. We're in the last days. We're in the last days. A lot of time from these self-appointed prophets, but that's another story, right? Come to my conference, you know, buy my books and all that kind of stuff. No, 
What they're saying is Jesus is coming back at any moment, at any time, because we're in the last days. And what they're saying is that, that, you know, within a week, within a month, within a year. That might be the case. We don't know. And they don't know because Jesus didn't know and ain't smarter than Jesus, right? What is the author doing here? This is what the author's doing. He's contrasting from the incomplete, unfulfilled Old Testament to the fulfillment of the New Testament by dividing, listen, history into two ages, long ago and these last days. It says it right in Scripture right here. Long ago, the prophets were revealing to us the last days when Jesus came, the new covenant, the new era. And the author describes it as these two ages. The point is not that Jesus is about to come back at any minute. Well, the New Testament says we should be ready, but that this is the age, the last days are the age of fulfillment when God's revelation has been made complete in Jesus Christ. Okay? This is what makes the the when of Christian revelation so much better than the old. With the coming of Jesus, with the death of Jesus, with the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, we are in the last days. That's what the author is saying. But I want you to feel, not only clear up some confusion, but I want you to feel the weight of that and the blessing of that that you and I right now are living in this blessed age where where Christ has come. The promises, so many promises of the Messiah that was veiled in the Old Testament has been made known in the New. That millions and millions of God's people were waiting for the day in which you are living in today. What a blessing we have. A full revelation of God. Knowing the Messiah came, knowing the Messiah died, knowing the Messiah rose from the dead. Some people call this progressive revelation that God was slowly giving the unveiling of himself, but now in Jesus Christ, it's been revealed. What a blessing. What a blessing. The new covenant in Christ is the full and complete realization of the promises, the prophecies, and all the things that shape the Old Testament. God spoke in the past. Now he speaks in Christ. And and now in Christ, he's spoken finally and fully And therefore, Christ is God's eschatological, his end times, his end word to us. God is a speaking God, family. God spoke, and now his final and fully has spoken in Christ. What a privilege. You know what else it is? Think of it this way as well. Not only is it a privilege to live in his time, but do you know that God's self-disclosed, God's revelation, the book that you have in your hand called the Scripture, is a matter of grace. God doesn't have to reveal himself to us. It is the grace of God. Francis Schaeffer in a book he wrote, uh, he is there and he is not silent, writes this. It is nothing but pure grace on God's part for him to speak to us. We do not deserve life-giving words. If God could not or did not speak, we would be left in darkness and ignorance, end quote. And finally we get to Christ. We're going to spend a lot of time over the next few months talking about Jesus. The revelation of God in a person. Look at verse 2 again. But in his last days he has spoken to us by his son. Supremacy, superiority, sufficiency of Christ as God's final word. One writer put it this way. Jesus is held up like a great jewel in the sunlight of God's revelation. God spoke by the prophet. Now he speaks to us by his son. You know what that reminds me of? John 1. 
John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, prastan theos, meaning intimate, face-to-face relationship with God, and the Word was God, and the Word, what? Became flesh and dwelt among us. The revelation of God took on flesh and bones. John says, if you want to know God, look at Jesus. If you want to think and hard about who God is, study Jesus. Hebrews is saying the same thing. He's not just another prophet, not just another mouthpiece. He's not just a change of activity or, 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 or somehow God has spoken a different way. No, he is the final and full revelation of God. It is literally, in the Greek, it's literally God has spoken to us in son. Jesus is the ultimate word. His climax and final revelation to us is Jesus Christ. If Jesus had not been revealed, if the word did not become flesh, we wouldn't have the cross. We wouldn't know the meaning of the cross. We wouldn't have the resurrection from the dead or the meaning of the resurrection of the dead. Nor would we have any idea how God wants us to respond to the gospel. But now we do. Now we do. This theme of sonship, he spoke to us by his son. We'll see over and over again. And a lot of times the Hebrew writer is talking about the particular time when Jesus, who is eternal, became man. He took on flesh. And he talks about the person of Christ in his incarnation and the work of Christ in his redemption. The superiority of this son, his reign, his mission, his achievements, his obedience, his nature, his perfection. And it's not just Jesus. God spoke in the past through the prophets, and now God spoke to us through his son, so you should listen to him. That's not what he's saying. It's, it is what he's saying, only part of it. Okay? We're not just talking about the teaching of Jesus. We're talking about the whole person. The incarnation, the word, the deeds, the cross. All of what Christ has done for us is communicating to us the final word to his covenant people. The whole New Testament is about Christ. From beginning to end, the whole Bible is, but particularly here in these last days. And now we're going to look at quickly, you can talk about it in, in community group, verses 2 and 3 give us seven. Count them seven, we'll go through them quickly. Seven affirmations about this beautiful, majestic, eternal Son of God. Okay, seven. The first one is this. Number one, whom he, the Father, appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is the inheritor of everything God possesses. Everything that exists finds its true meaning under the final and full reality of Christ. Psalm 2, he'll mention it later on in the text, chapter 1. We'll look at it next week. But here we see Psalm 2, same thing, that, that Christ would one day be the heir of all God's possessions. Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, God speaking, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. Paul in the New Testament book of Colossians says all things not only were created by him, but for him. Romans 11, from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him, Jesus, be the glory forever. Everything exists. 
everything exists does so by and for Jesus Christ. He's the sole heir, heir of all things. Now, when you see verses like this where it says, he has appointed, it was a time of an appointment. doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't eternal. It means there was a time and space where now the inauguration of Christ has come. He's the king. He took on flesh and bones, and now by, by the incarnation, by his redemption, by virtue of his triumphal work on the cross and his reconciling to God, he is now the son. He's the inheritor as sons inherit. Calvin said this, the name heir is attributed to Christ as manifestation in the flesh. For in being made man and putting on the same nature as us, he took on himself the heirship to be heir in order to restore us to that which was lost in Adam, end quote. He's the inheritor of all things. Yes, Satan has a moment in time that God has allowed him to run his little game on earth, but Christ will inherit the nations. Began in his inauguration and someday when he comes back, number one. Now, let, me ask, let me ask you this before we move on. Do you live like that? Do, do I live like that? Do we really live each day in that reality that the son is... is, is Reigning inheritor of the earth? Do we live in, under his authority? I want you to see the beauty of Christ here. I want you to see that he's the heir of all things. And number two, through whom he created the world. He created the world. Christ is the agent in which God created the world. If, if that doesn't speak about his divinity, nothing does. The, the, ability, the ability to create shows forth clearly the divinity of Christ. Interesting to note here, it says the world, that he created all things, created the world, it's not cosmos, which is the physical world, is the word actually ion, which means universes, times, epics, ages, everything has been created. Space, time, energy, matter, everything has been created by Christ. I mean, think about that. Every speck of dust, millions of galaxies, solar system, atoms. The air of all things was the instrument of creating it. Again, do we believe that? Are we, are we trusting in Christ today with your circumstances, your trials, knowing that he is the creator of all things? Number three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Some of you have in your translation reflection. I don't think it's a good one. The moon reflects light. The sun radiates light because it's part of its source. Jesus does not simply reflect God's glory. He is God's glory. In the Old Testament, remember the Shekinah glory would come down. It was the manifestation of God. His splendor, his majesty, whether it was in the temple. Um, uh, he, uh, we saw it in the, um, yeah, in the temple, uh, giving of the law. All these things, the glory of God came. We got a mini peek into Christ's eternal glory when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, Mark tells us. There's this intrinsic glory we got to see. And, and, and the author here is saying, look, look to Christ. Christ is the way we see most fully the glory of God. It is the same glory that God said he will share with no one, Isaiah chapter 42 as brilliant as the sun is in the sky, we would never know its warmth, right? We never know its warmth without the radiant beams that, that come to us. It's going to be a beautiful day today. 
to the earth. Think of it that way. With God and his eternal son who is the radiance of his glory. The majesty, the infinite worth of God is seen in Jesus Christ. And without the son, we would be in darkness. We would never cherish and treasure the beauty, the glory, the incalculable worth of Christ. There are many counterfeits that tried to distract us away from God's glory. Get glory in this, get glory in this. Find meaning and worth in this. And we need to look at Jesus, who is the glory of God, radiant glory of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Believers don't see the light and the glory of the gospel in Christ, who is the image of God. Second Corinthians again, God said, let light shine out of darkness as shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And here the writer of Hebrew reminds his readers that nowhere, nowhere has the glory of God been more perfectly manifested than in the person of Christ. Number four, he's the exact imprint of his nature. The Greek word talks about, it really means the impression like on a coin or a die or a stamp or a seal. Jesus is the, is the personal, perfect imprint of God. The word nature means essence. Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yes, one God, three persons. How, how that all? If you have it completely understood, good for you. But here we see, we know at least what God has revealed to us about himself, that Jesus is God, eternal in nature, co-equal, co-essence, and yet distinct as a person who died on the cross. We know that enough. We know that. Jesus Christ is not only the glory of God revealed, he is God in essence and nature. Number five, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is not only the creator, the inheritor, he's also the sustainer. This is Jesus He's not inactively sustaining. He's actively holding up. It's a continuous verb. He's holding up the universe. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, Colossians tells us. He's the active agent in creation and holding all things together. If the sun willed the universe to cease, it would cease to exist. It would fall apart. Christ has the power to create, the power to preserve, the power to control, the power to bring to an end. And Hebrew tells us the Son possesses that kind of power. Number six, after making purification for sins. The author just, he doesn't just throw it in there, but he just pops this in there. And he gets everyone ready to talk about the work of redemption that is going to be spoken about a lot in this book. And he's recalling these Old Testament sacrifices in the Old Testament where these goats and, 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 and bulls were being sacrificed. And he talks about Christ is the one who purifies us from sins. Now, listen to me carefully. Sustainer, ruler, inheritor, creator, upholding all things by his power, died cleanses us from our sins. If 
Philip used. Jesus is ceaselessly, ceaselessly, the radiant light of God's glory. He's the perfect copy of his nature, and he continuously holds the universe by the word of his power. But when he gave himself up on the cross, Jesus shed his blood once for all at a single point in time, end quote. This is trajectory. This is the trajectory of what's going to be said about Christ that you need to hear this morning. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And that this majestic, all-powerful, sustainer, creator, heir of all things, Jesus Christ, went to the cross, died our deserved death in order to be forgiven of our sins. And he dies in our place. He takes the penalty for our sins upon himself. And if we will trust him today, if we will rely upon him today, if we will accept his death on our behalf and believe that he died and rose for us, for you, he will free us from the penalty of sin and purify us from the stain of sin. In the Old Testament, the priest would sacrifice day after day, year after year, sacrifices for himself and for the people, but not Jesus. Jesus is the priest and the sacrifice. He becomes the pure sacrifice because he alone lived a life you could never live, a life of perfection. He alone can then purify our sins by his perfect life and atoning death. We are sinners. We deserve the penalty of our sins. He has died in our place. And when we accept him, when we believe upon him, when we see his majesty, his beauty, and his work on the cross, and we, and we turn from our sins, and we trust him alone for our salvation, he purifies us. Sin makes us dirty. And Jesus cleanses us from all sins. The Bible says in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, 1 John. And when his eternal work of purification was brought into triumphant conclusion at the resurrection of the dead, what does it say? The Lord sat down. He sat down, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, number seven. The priest stands every day There was no place for the priest to sit giving sacrifices because he knew it was never going to be over. He had no right to sit. It was a continual thing for him, waiting for the Messiah. They would offer daily, but they knew that it was never going to be eternally effective. Jesus sitting down at the right hand after making purification for sins tells us some wonderful truths number one the work is finished it is finished he cried sins forgiven past present and future all our sins are nailed to the cross as we like to sing his work is done the fact that he sits down at the right hand speaks to us about honor and authority at the right hand of majesty it also tells us that jesus can intercede for you as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that's why we wanted to have communion this morning. I wanted you to get a picture. Well, the author of Hebrews, God himself wants, to get, wants you to get a picture of this majesty and magnificent and infinite value of Christ, God's Son, the eternal Son, who is reigning and ruling and sustaining, who gave his life for you. 
And maybe you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Christ. You've never accepted his sacrifice on your behalf as a payment for your sins to purify you from your sins. If you've never done that, do so this morning. Confess your sins to God. Turn from being your own Savior, your own Lord, and invite Christ into your life as Savior and Lord and follow him. He died for you. He rose for you. And trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you're here this morning, you're a Christian, but you know, world, the world, the other things in this life has gotten you so caught up that you're saying, the Holy Spirit is saying to you, man, I'm so wrapped up that I didn't, I I forgot about this. I have not seen this before. I need to repent and just believe what the Bible says about Jesus and trust him in it. It doesn't mean it's the circumstances are going away. But God wants you to see him for who he is in the midst of your circumstances and trials. The band, just in case you're new here, the band's gonna play. And when God speaks to your heart, confess your sins. The church, I'm calling the church to confession of sin. I'm calling myself to confess my sins. Maybe you never trusted Christ, do so today. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can come and take communion. If you're not, you're still unsure, you wanna talk about the gospel, see one of the pastors, great. Just sit back and sing. We love you, we're glad you're here, we'd love to talk to you. But if you're a follower of Christ, this table's for you. So we're gonna confess our sins, we're gonna acknowledge our failures, and then what are we gonna do? We're gonna repent, we turn from them, and then we're gonna celebrate. Because the body, the bread represents the body that was broken, the cup, the blood that was shed for our sins. And we're gonna celebrate the work of Christ. We're gonna celebrate his incarnation coming humbly before us to die for our sins and rise from the dead. I'm gonna call the band up. Come on up, guys. Have this mind among you, which is yours, which was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, how? By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Stepped out of heaven's glory, became a man, died a gruel ruling death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, thank you for this magnificent portrayal that you've given us about yourself and about your son. Lord, as we sing this next song, as we take of the bread, as we drink of the cup, help our hearts to see you, to love you, to worship you, to to run to you for forgiveness of sins, for a relationship with you, for your glory, Lord, and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.